Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. Hear the full show on our app, by podcast, or on 96FM.ie. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. We are saying as long as there is breath in our bodies, we will not forget you. If we don't deal with this issue now, the problem will get bigger. The lack of empathy. These women need to get over themselves. We're the one for Cork and ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The lines are live. Let's kickstart the conversation. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Do you know you love it when a story that we started talking about here in midsummer, when when some people had never heard of the place. Now it's national news, and this morning it's going before uh, an Iraqis committee, and hopefully we can touch base with it uh, during the morning. That's the Owen Akura Centre story, which you'll have heard my visit to Owen Akura. Um, we did that yesterday morning on the programme, and then it made national news last evening. On the 6-1, and this morning there's a meeting of the Iraqis Mental Health Committee, which is chaired by Senator Francis Black, where the HSE are going to be asked to explain what's happening at uh, Onakura in Middleton. And if we get anything from that meeting or anything comes out of that meeting during the course of the morning, you will be, I promise you, uh, the very first to know. 1850-715-996, the number, a whole pile of stuff to do, really, really packed couple of hours ahead of us, so we'll get straight to the business of the day. Nearly 100,000 children, this is the killer line from the news this morning, nearly 100,000 children aged between 12 and 15 have not yet been registered for a COVID-19 vaccine. 16 to 17 year olds, 78% of them have been signed up. 18 to 29 year olds, 86% of them have been signed up, but there's a, a low take-up in the children aged between 12 and 15, and it's worrying on a number of levels. Professor Liam Fanning is with the Department of Immunovirology at UCC. Liam, good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. Good to speak with you again. Is that a worrying yes. statistic in <clears throat> your view? 
It is funny. I was well, not funny. I was on a radio station about two uh, weeks ago, uh, Galway Bay FM, and uh, we were discussing the very same thing um, about the low numbers of uptake in the twelve to fifteen year olds. And while there was a, a very, you know, impressive uh, trajectory at the launch of the fifteen to twelve year olds availability for the COVID nineteen vaccine, um, it has steadied off and plateaued, and probably even decreased a little bit with regard to the numbers attending. And this is very worrying from a, from a, you know from a number of perspectives. We know that this vaccine gives great protection. Nobody wants their child or their parent or guardian to get COVID-19 and yet they have some concerns which is um, uh, I suppose delaying them getting um, the vaccine or they're, they're taking a kind of a, a wait and see approach. I suppose the wait and see approach really, um, you know, it does have the you know the caveat or the kind of risk that your child may pick up COVID-19 in the meantime. You know, these vaccines have been used in millions of individuals around the world, um, hundreds of millions and uh, in children, you know, they have mm. been approved by the EMA and they have been shown to be safe and you know on a, on a you know uh, we all understand you know, I'm a very strong advocate of vaccines and their utility um, to help us get out of this pandemic but also we've seen from a psychosocial development you know even in the secondary schools if an individual is vaccinated they're not sent home so you know they can stay in school they can still be with their other vaccinated mates the parents or the guardians don't have to take time off to you know, to mind a child so it's not just about mm. It's about social engagement, psychosocial development. You know, it's 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 almost moved beyond you know kind of protection against the the, the infection, which it clearly is, and that's its prime directive. But um, I mean, I would I mean I would appeal to anybody who's uncertain with regard to kind of sure they give their twelve or fifteen year old a vaccine to talk to their healthcare provider, to talk to somebody who's knowledgeable about it. Uh, go to the department website, you know, look at the data, um, and if they don't understand the data, bring those questions to their healthcare provider to say, look, I'm an uncertain. Uh, the risks are the following. I don't fully understand those figures. Yeah. Can you can you explain it to me um, as to why I should get? Uh, my boy or girl uh, vaccinated um, mm. w- with the Pfizer vaccine. Those who are over 18, Liam, they're, they're young adults. They can make their own decision. Those who are in their late teens, well, they will tell their parents what they want to do and they'll argue it out and a decision will be made. But those between 12 and 15, if your parents are hesitant then they're not going to bring you to a centre and they're not going to prevent, present you for your vaccine and you can't go on your own if you're under 16. So hesitancy among parents was probably a huge hurdle here, would you think? I would, absolutely. Um, and look, some of this comes from probably, uh, you know, during the, the build-up to where we are now, uh, it was so much mixed messaging going on, you know, uh, you know, we'll say language between NIAC, between NEFIT, between government, Minister Donnelly telling us at one point there wouldn't be a choice in vaccine, then telling us it wouldn't be mixing vaccines. And all of those things have come to kind of, you know, we, you know, uh, individuals have a choice, you know, we can mix vaccines now. You know, so, I mean, and we are now getting even booster shots, which are being used, technically speaking, uh, off licence, you know, for the over 80s and uh, in the community and the over 65s in uh, residential care facilities or in, in you know, with a community shared uh, living. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so there's been an awful lot of trajectory and information uh, you know to people um, and you know it, I can I can sense you know that with some individuals look I've just heard too much and I, I, I can't I can't understand any of it 
look, go to their healthcare provider. You know, they will provide and talk to them in a language and they will be able to give them the time mm-hmm. to, um, you know, answer their questions and worries. And they're probably worried, their worry is, am I going to give my child, sorry, is my child going to react to the vaccine in a way that would be worse than if I got COVID-19? Look, that, that that's basically the bottom line, mm-hmm. um, PJ, I imagine. And, you know, um, we know that, uh, you know, COVID-19 infection has, the po- po- you know, a small possibility of, of long COVID, even in young children. Um, we know that some individuals, you know, can, can be symptomatic um, for maybe, you know, three, four, five, six, seven weeks beyond it and then recover. Um, and, you know, the GP will say, well, look, the, the vaccine will protect your child against that, will protect you transmitting it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a risk of, you know, um, in you know, a, a, a small risk of, you know, inflammation of the heart um, in individuals. And that's a very serious condition, but we can manage it. So, you know, it's all about, you know, giving a proportionality to the risk and benefit um, and letting a as you rightly say, uh, you know, we'll say the the vaccine disposed uh, 13-year-old, if their parent says, no, you're not getting it, well, then they can't get it. That's the end of that story. So it's about continuing the education journey to try and bring them to a point where they say, right, look, the benefits outweigh the risk. Uh, there's a lot of COVID going around in the kind of 12 to 24-year-old age group at the moment. I, I don't want my son or daughter uh, picking up COVID-19 because, you know, they may be the one uh, who will get long COVID. You know, um, and it's a risk balance. It's like with all vaccination programs, um, PJ, you know, children are vaccinated against polio. There hasn't been a case of polio in Ireland in a long time. You know what I mean? So, and we vaccinate them against hepatitis A, hepatitis B, and, you know, um, you know the meningococcal ones and all. So there's a lots of stuff. Um, and, and the other thing too is we're coming into a flu season as well, um, mm. PJ. And mm-hmm. nobody, you know, we, ha- we really don't know what this Delta variant is going to be like in the context of a respiratory virus that has, you know, an influenza and maybe an RSV type virus, you know, the usual snotty kind of respo- mm-hmm, virus mm-hmm. responsible for kind of runny noses and coughs and that kind of thing. And we, you know, we saw yesterday we had a kind of easing of restrictions and more mixing. And on the 22nd of October, that's going to happen again. So, you know, the vaccines do offer the best protection, PJ, yeah. but you are right. A 13-year-old who wants a vaccine and the parents or guardian says, no, they're in a very tricky position with regard to getting it. They can't get it. John raises a number of questions, uh, Liam, that I think I'm hearing from parents of children in that age group, shall we say. Mm-hmm. First of all, he raises the question of it still not being fully licensed in the EU. He also raises a question which I've heard in my own circle. Well, aren't young bodies still maturing? And, and a, you know, a young body at puberty time, and aren't those children at a very difficult time in their lives? Their body chemistry is changing. Their physiology is changing. And we're putting, and I will use the term reservedly here, Liam, we're putting an experimental product into their veins. That's a mentality that is out there, whether we agree or disagree with it. Uh, that is true. Okay, so let, let let me deal with some of the the maybe just in reverse order regarding to their their growing bodies and maturing. That is quite correct. But what we, in an ironic sort of way, what we are seeing <clears throat> from these vaccines is that the younger individuals are having a more robust response to these vaccines, and and that's why you know for the five to eleven year olds, they're actually able to use much less of this particular of the component, the active part of the vaccine in the vaccination, and um, they use it in a thirty micro. It's a small part of a gram. And in the 5 to 11-year-old, it's going to be a third of that. It's going to be 10. Why? 
because we know that their immune responses are, are really vigorous at responding to pathogens to protect them <laughs> against foreign proteins. So really, I, I understand that they're growing in all aspects, be it psychologically and physically. But ironically enough, from an immune perspective, they're at the best point to get this vaccine because we saw with the human papillomavirus, the virus that causes cervical cancer, that that particular vaccine was given, uh, was recommended to be given ideally in the young teenage years. Why? Because they have a very strong response. Now, the other reason why was before they become sexually active. That's a slightly different story. Sure. But, um, you know, the individuals of this age who respond really strongly to vaccines, and when I say really, really strongly, they don't exhibit a, a side effect portfolio that's any different to those that are older. They generate more protection. Yes. Against the vaccine. So the second point you mentioned there was about uh, licensing. Yes. So these have emergency approval for the duration of the pandemic. And what we've seen um, and, and with, let's, let's face it, without that emergency approval, everybody remembers where we were in January. We would be still, you know, uh, dealing with, with, with the consequences of rampant, um, lock, uh, you know, rampant infection. Trying to ameliorate that with, with stringent lockdown. We look back. We look. We look back. Look to Australia and see where they are now. And we mm. look back with them in envy when they when they had their yeah. you know um, uh, tried essentially zero COVID strategy. And Delta was the one that found the weakness in that strategy. Yes. So in order to give the global population the best protection possible, we had to have emergency use authorization for these particular uh, these particular agents, right? And what what will happen now is, you know, we've already seen that the, the FDA has given, we'll call it regular approval for the vaccines in the in, in the adult population. And that emergency approval will change, uh, our emergency authorization will change um, to kind of, we'll call it fully licensed uh, use um, for these particular drugs. Mm. So yes, they are co correct. So it's like a you know, we were in an emergency situation. We had to use the tools available, and we were we were in many ways so lucky that this you know that this pandemic didn't happen you know maybe five or ten years ago, yeah. because we wouldn't have had these mRNA vaccines. The technology at the point wasn't ready. Yeah. It wasn't ready, yeah. um, and you know. Um, you know, you look back in October nine, uh, 2019, almost two years ago now, PJ. And we had, uh, you know, the first shots in Ireland were given in December uh, 2020, um, uh, the, the very last part of it, admittedly. Um, you know, I mean, that was 15 months since the beginning of the pandemic in October 2019. OK, thereabouts anyway, the declaration by WHO later on, but the emergence of it into the human population, we'll say, um, over in China. So, you know, um, yeah, we have to use these emergency tools to give us okay. an opportunity to survive this pandemic because we've already seen the millions of people you know that have been infected and the very large numbers that have died so that's why the, I, I accept they do have a point it is under emergency approval but that doesn't weaken in any way the rigour with which these uh, you know uh, agents yeah, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you brought that point up because this, this emergency approval Somehow or other, there's a, an, an undercurrent with some of the. Oh, sure, that it can't. They, they don't know what it's going to do. They don't know how it's going to. They do, don't they? They do, PJ. They do. Look, there are. Hun I think uh, the last figure I saw uh, was something like over two billion vaccine doses have been given worldwide. Now, there's a whole different, you know, portfolio of vaccines from the mRNA ones that we now know of Pfizer and Moderna. We had the AstraZeneca one and the J and J, which are the vector-derived uh, ones. And we've had, you know, the Chinese have vaccinated, you know, um, a, a large proportion. I think it's one point. Uh, I don't know. They've given out billions of their doses. They've sent them around the world. You know, there and there are several more coming 
coming out of trial as well. Like, um, so you know, um, we have such a portfolio of vaccines that when one pe- people speak of vaccines. It's not just, they're not all the same. Yes. And we are so lucky in Ireland to have these mRNA vaccines as the kind of dominant vaccine that we are now, and nearly it's actually totally RNA vaccines that yeah. we're using now. You know, we are so lucky in this country. So, so lastly, Liam, just to wrap up with you and having gone through the science, and thank you for, as always, being so positive about it, to parents who were listening to us this morning on the opinion line who have a child age between 12 and 15, or maybe a little younger, because let's face it, we're going to be looking at that cohort soon enough. And to, Yeah, we are going to be looking at the 5 to 11. Sorry, Peter. To parents who are concerned, what would you say, Liam? Okay, my first port of call is always to say, look, if you have concerns, write down your questions. That's the clear thing. So you understand kind of, you know, where your concerns are and go to your healthcare provider or your community nurse. And if you can't get satisfaction there, go to the HSE website. Um, go to verified websites. Stay off the Facebook, stay off the whatever other chatter you're on and, and, and listening to hearsay. Go to the verified websites. Go to your healthcare provider. They know best about how to deliver the information to you. These vaccines have been shown to safe to be safe. They have a risk profile. You know, you know, like every medicine, like Panadol, they have a risk profile. But it's very much understood where the benefits and the risks lie, and that's what we're talking about: the benefits of getting vaccination as opposed to the risks of rolling the dice with getting COVID nineteen and perhaps your child ending up with long COVID. Here is. A caller that will, ju- or a text rather, that will, I think, sum up the questions that are out there and maybe you can address it. As a mother of a 12-year-old daughter who's on the cusp of puberty, I'd be very concerned about any foreign changes to her body and reproductive system for the future because of the vaccine. It's an ongoing discussion in our house. I'm nervous. She isn't. Liam? <laughs> well, look, the parent is rightly nervous because she's a concerned mother about everything that goes into her uh, young daughter's body. And that's to be welcomed. You know, she has a questioning mind in regard to, I don't want anything to harm my daughter. And that's perfectly rational. And actually, it is to be expected. Um, and, you know, the, she, the, her concern is, is this vaccine going to do anything to, uh, she mentioned puberty, to my to my daughter's trajectory, to, to true puberty um, and onwards into, into womanhood. And the data, t- and, and we can only go on the, on the millions of data, the hundreds of millions of vaccines that have been given out. There have been no signals whatsoever um, that this vaccine, that these vaccines um, cause any delay or disturbance to puberty or the development of the growing body. But I would, I would encourage that particular woman to pick up the phone, write down her questions and pick up the phone and talk to her healthcare provider um, or her community nurse or whoever she has a trusted individual who's knowledgeable Uh, And this is the key thing, who's knowledgeable and understands what Pfizer-BioNTech and Moderna have achieved and can deliver the risk profile and the benefit profile in a language that that woman and her daughter understands. Although by the sounds of it, the daughter seems to be um, looking um, positively disposed to vaccines. But the mother's perfectly right to be concerned. That has to be acknowledged and all parents. All right, listen, always a pleasure to speak with you on The Opinion. And Professor Liam Fanning, Professor of Immunovirology at UCC. Liam, thank you. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Oldies and Irish on Cork's 96FM is the big Sunday show on your radio. Big, 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 show, 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 radio.
Turn it up and take it easy with the best music mix for your Sunday morning. Sunday morning. Welcome along to the programme. Lovely to be with you on a Sunday morning. Oldies and Irish with Derry O'Callaghan. Sundays, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. With Douglas Court Shopping Centre. They've got everything you need and more. Visit douglascourt.ie. Cork's 96 FM. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now, 1850 715 On Cork's 96FM. Actually, just on the subject, Liam mentioned Australia and their vaccine programme, which is slower than ours. And a lot of the people who gave out to me and gave out to others for being so supportive of the way Australia have handled COVID-19, uh, they've been gloating at the fact that Australia have a problem at the moment. I'll tell you something, I'm in the process of getting Dr. Niall Conroy, our good pal in Queensland, to, to do a chat with me for my own podcast and trying to pin him down because the man is so, so, so busy because he's on call and he and his team are on call almost around the clock now in Queensland for outbreak control and infection control. But they are bringing the situation under control and Australia's had a, a fairly torrid few weeks. But but if you look at their death per million, we have in this country 1,035 deaths per million of population. They have 46. All right. And they are vaccinating. Now, it's a slower program and there's a bit more hesitancy than we had. But, you know, you can't win on every uh, stall in the fairground. But they will get through it. They will get through it. They've been far more successful than us, if you look at it in a total picture. I mean, if you look at Queensland, where where Niall is, they had, I think the last time he was on, he said seven deaths. We've had, how many? 5,000, and they have the same, the same population. But they are vaccinating, and they will, they, will, um, they will get through them. But yeah, if you ever want to knock Australia, because some people do, uh, we had 1,000, or have had, 1,035 deaths per million population in this country. They've had 46. So think about that the next time. 1850-715-996. I'm only waiting to get my eight-year-old vaccinated. The worry of her getting COVID is way more than the worry of any vaccine side effects. For me, it's a no-brainer, to be honest. And that seems to be a lot of parents. And listen again to what Liam Fanning had to say. If you've got questions, write down your question, call your doctor, call your public health nurse, go to see someone who's actually qualified, go to a proper website. Don't be getting your, do not be getting your biology and your immunovirology and your epidemiology and your physiology from Twitter or from Facebook. Don't, right? Can we breathe? We can. All right. 1850-715-996. Politicians in Cork are being urged to push harder for a supervised injection centre for the city. This came up at the Cork City Joint Policing Committee, the JPC meeting, uh, yesterday. And it was brought up by the Chief Executive, Anne Doherty, and by the Lord Mayor, Councillor Cullum Kelleher. Let us find out if the experts in, and I'm not saying that Cullum in his own way or Anne in her own way aren't experts in their own views, but let's go and talk to an expert 
about the pos- about whether or not a supervised injection centre would be a good thing for Cork. I speak of, of course, Michael Gearan. I'll talk to him next. Day. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie Let me show you what it's all about. Simon Murdoch and the best music mix. Weekdays from midday on Cork's 96FM. Afternoons in Cork sound better here. I've got the big tunes from all your favourite artists. Hey, it's me, Justin Bieber. Hi, this is Billy Ireland. What's happening, everybody? It's Tom Gwennon. I'm always good for a prize. Oh, thank you so much. That's brilliant. Thanks a million. And big name stars on the show for a chat. Joel Curry. Personally, Ireland is my favourite place to play. You guys know it's like a second home to me and I miss it so much. In the afternoon in Cork, in the car, at work, at home. Make sure you're with me. Simon Murdoch, midday to 4 p.m. on Cork's 96 FM. Can we just talk? The opinion line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083 396 On Cork's 96FM. So injection centres for heroin users were part of the programme plans for government in 2016 but of course it it never happened. Should it be happening Michael Gearan? Good morning again. Good morning PJ good to talk to you as always. And um, to you. I think I think that the idea as you pointed out there the idea of supervised injection centres has been around in Ireland for some time but it's failed to get off the ground possibly because nobody really wants a supervised injection centre in their locality. And I think in Dublin, one of the issues was they were struggled to get the necessary planning and the site to make it happen. That's right. That's right. But I think broadly speaking, we what we need to look at here really is the, the cohort of people to which we are referring. These are chronic heroin abusers who are injecting and there is a good possibility that a lot of them will not be engaging with any service whatsoever in terms of improving their lot. So the idea of the injection centre is that the people will be able to come in. You will more or less eliminate the possibility of accidental overdose because you will have trained staff and things like naloxone and that to reverse the effects of opiate overdose. And you will also minimise the effects or the likelihood of somebody contracting a needle-borne disease. So in that respect, supervised injection centres are a very good idea. They also, of course, provide an opportunity for the staff in the centre who will be qualified and trained to engage with the person and maybe to talk to them about how they might cut down or maybe eventually cut out their heroin use. So there are an awful lot of positives associated with with supervised injection centres. The people who don't agree with them, and they would be in the minority at this stage, I would say, would say that that by providing an injection centre for somebody with a heroin problem, you are in ex- in effect and to some extent normalising that behaviour. Mm. Aren't, aren't we always be- told, Michael, aren't, are we not always told that one of the problems with addiction or with people trying to get out of addiction is that we knowingly or unknowingly enable them and that providing an addiction centre, sorry, providing an injection centre is actually the state enabling people to continue with a habit that in actual fact we should be trying to break. Yes, um, we certainly should be trying to break the habit, but it's worth bearing in mind that the people who would be accessing the 
supervised injection centre are people who have gone to the edge where drugs is concerned anyway. So no amount of enabling or otherwise is going to change anything at this point. These are poor people who have progressed along the addictive cycle to the point that they are now injecting heroin, which along with crack cocaine abuse is up there with as bad as it gets. Um, So what we need to do is provide meaningful opportunities for these people to engage with services and minimise the amount of risk they are exposed to and harm that they do to themselves in the hope that there might be a turnaround in some cases. And there would be in that situation cases who would um, reach out and engage with services and improve their lot significantly. And there probably would be those that wouldn't as well. Yeah, this is what the the science calls harm reduction therapy, really, isn't it, Michael? Yes, and harm reduction is something that has come to the fore um, in Ireland over the last decade. It's something we have started to talk in terms of, really, because what we have found is prohibition hasn't worked for us as a nation. And in spite of all the raft of legislation and court proceedings that we have had down through the years over drug possession and drug supply, the problem has actually got worse rather than get better. So now we are looking at lower threshold harm reduction services in order that people, that their quality of the lives of the individuals who use the drugs would be improved through these lower threshold harm reduction services. And anything that will improve the life of somebody with a drug problem is a good thing, in my view. Okay, Michael, thanks as always for speaking to us on the Opinion Line. Michael Gearan from uh, Brewery Coonwooda, 1850-715-996. As I've said before, and I will say it again, if Michael Gearan says something is okay, it's okay. That's how much respect that man is held uh, in the Opinion Line. 1850-715-996. Quick reminder to you that if you are a band or a hip-hop act, or a rapper, or a DJ, or a singer-songwriter, or a fellow who writes stuff in your bedroom and you are half afraid to let people hear it, or you put all your stuff up on YouTube, whatever, then we may have an opportunity for you. Um, It's Irish Music Month in October, and we're looking for your music demos. Send them in to us, to irishmusic at 96fm.ie. irishmusic at 96fm.ie. Dot IE for a chance to win an overall prize of €5,000. You get your record released and you have your music played on independent stations across Ireland. It's the Irish Music Month, proudly supported by Cork's 96FM and Hot Press, IBI, and the BAI Sound and Vision Fund. The kind of music you make doesn't actually matter right now. Get your music onto an MP3 file. Get it to us, Irish Music at 96fm.ie and we will take it from there. We will take it from there. 1850-715-996. Actually, speaking of Irish music, watch this guy. First chance I've got to come to it. This fella is called Stefan Doyle. Remember the name. Remember the name Stefan Doyle. And if he wins the X Factor in Romania, uh, don't be a bit surprised. More about that. As as um, as it progresses, eighteen fifty seven one five nine nine six. John says no need for children to be vaccinated. You said you don't want to be in a room with people who aren't vaccinated. Well, I know people who work in hospitals who aren't vaccinated, including doctors and nurses. So if you get sick, you won't go to hospital to be treated. Man, that John, look, if you're 
feel that way, fine. I No, I don't particularly want to work in a room with someone who has, isn't vaccinated unless they medically can't be. There are some of those people. If they medically can't be, then fine. I'm only waiting to get my HO vaccinated. The worry of her getting COVID is way more than any vaccine side effect. It's a no-brainer for me, to be honest. 1850-715-996. I did a test this morning, one of these personality tests. Because whenever I'm going to discuss something like I'm going to discuss now, I like to try it on myself. Would you guess, I'm not going to tell you, let's see what. how well do listeners know me. Am I an extrovert or an introvert? How well do my listeners know me? I did a little test this morning. One of these things you do online, 20 questions. Now, there's loads of them out there. Some of them are probably more scientific than others. But this is one I can do in three or four minutes. Am I an extrovert or an introvert? Because it turns out that lockdown and other things have been easier on extroverts than they've been on introverts. Aoife Lennox, good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. Nice to talk to you. Now, you we don't know each other, so I, I, I'm assuming that you're not going to make any assumptions. We'll see if my listeners do, though. Okay, <laughs> I, very good. I wait to hear. <laughs> yeah. Uh, why? Why was first of all, what defines an introvert and what defines an, an extrovert? Is it just personality, or is it actually science? Well, there certainly is science behind it and, and actually it's genetic and what we know about introverts and extroverts and our differences is that it really comes down to energy and how we energize. So people who are higher in extroversion tend to be energized by interactions with other people. So they get fueled by that. And um, as introverts, we actually have um, a sensitivity to something called dopamine. And that really means that we get drained by those social interactions. So it doesn't mean that we're antisocial. There's a lot of negative um, perceptions around what it means to be an introvert. It doesn't mean we don't like people or that we're unfriendly, but we just can get really overstimulated and drained. Um, And that's why many introverts really enjoyed working from home because they got a release from that busy office environment Mm -hmm. that, um, that can be really draining for them. Does introverted mean shy or is that a misnomer? No, and you can actually have shy extroverts. So shyness is really to do with social anxiety. It's an anxiety about people judging you. Um, And shyness is something that can be overcome, whereas introversion is your genetic temperament. So it's not something that will be changed. Now, we have what they call character traits. So we can adapt, right? So if you're you're very high in introversion, it means maybe you're quieter, maybe you're very reserved, but you can certainly learn the skills to function in whatever your job is. Um, so I had to do that in training or, you know, being able to speak on the radio, anything like that. So they're all skills that you can learn. Um, so shyness is something that you can get over. But your natural tendency as an introvert is to have a preference for maybe a lot of solitary time. Um, maybe you prefer more one to one interactions or small group. And that will stay with you. And that's your preference. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Who fared we- Who fared better then? during the last 18 months of the pandemic, not just through working from home and staying at home for long periods. Mm. Who fared better? Mm. One would think the introvert. 
Exactly, yeah. And when this all started, there was a lot of funny stuff trending on social media that, you know, introverts were born for this um, and, and many enjoyed being in their bubble. But actually, introverts are more at risk for loneliness and depression mm. and anxiety. And because introverts tend to be kind of inward focused, um, they're actually less likely to, to ask for help when they're struggling. They're less likely to reach out and build connections and maintain those relationships that we all need. So as the pandemic continued and people were in lockdown and they were disconnected, um, what the research is showing is that actually extroverts did a better job because extroverts are better at maintaining those social connections and relationships with other people. Yeah, and that's really, They would go to more trouble to stay connected, is that it? Absolutely, because they actually have that need. They, they, they need that dopamine fix and they have that need to reach out to other people. Whereas as introverts, we don't. We're actually quite happy, um, you know, maybe reading a book, doing kind of the solitary stuff that you might do. Um, so we have less of a need to be around other people. But then what happens is you don't maybe put the energy into maintaining those relationships and the contacts. And the research will show that introverts have so, uh, smaller social and professional networks. And so then when you're in a pandemic situation and you're in lockdown, you've people really disconnected. And particularly for introverts who might live alone, um, I think it's been a really, really difficult time. Um, so so it, I think th- there will need to be a lot of uh, awareness and support um, for people who have been very disconnected um, during lockdowns. As we start, well, as we've been in the office all the time, but as people who've been at home mm-hmm. for the last year and a half start to come back to the office, the extrovert and the introvert, it'll work out differently for them both, will it? Yeah, well, I think extroverts might find that they're maybe a little bit more excited about going back into the office. Now, everybody, of course, has benefited from flexibility and so forth. So there's lots of other factors. Um, But for many introverts, the idea of going into a really busy overstimulating office, particularly on a five day a week um, option is um, the, the, the re-entry fear of that is is very real. And there is a lot of anxiety and, you know, the, the talk about the great resignation and the mass exodus and all that. And and I have heard a lot of people say, if I'm forced to go back into the office, I, I will look for another job. Um, so I think it's really important for introverts, and I, I hope maybe during lockdown that they may have come to a self-awareness about their temperament and realize, you know, I'm really productive and I'm really focused when I have opportunity to work in a quiet environment. Mm -hmm. So maybe when you go back into the office, there needs to be some conversations around temperament and, you know, have introverts and extroverts talking about their temperament and what does that mean and what are your strengths and how do you like to work? And just having those conversations, I think we have a real opportunity here to, to redesign work because a lot of the the workplaces or the processes are really designed for more extroverted temperaments. So the open plan office, uh, the emphasis on teamwork, collaboration, when actually, and even brainstorming, things like that, they don't really suit the introverted temperament. We like to think things through first before we contribute. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So in a brainstorming situation, introverts often might find it challenging to speak up or even just speaking up in a meeting. I think many introverts have found it actually easier to contribute while working remotely Um, and I did a little post on LinkedIn recently and 70% of introverts that responded said they found it easier to contribute while working remotely. 
Yeah. So is it the I'd thing that employers see, should yeah. consider? Like, if it's a thing that John yeah. or Mary has been really, really productive at home in mm. the last eighteen months and is now saying to you, "Do you know what? I think I'd prefer to stay working out of the back bedroom. I felt happier." And you look at John's record and say, "Well, actually, you've been really productive. So, can we cut some arrangement here?" Employ and is it should employers take that into account? Yeah, absolutely. And I think and I was listening to your speaker yesterday and like this, this isn't a one size fits all, I suppose, and where there can be flexibility um, like the focus is on the outcomes and the deliverables and, and what you do in your work, not not so much how you do it. So when and where you do it. Um, should become less important than than what you actually produce in the end. And and definitely to create more inclusive work environments, paying attention to our temperament and our different ways of working, I think will be really beneficial going forward and really helpful for well-being and mental health as well. Okay, for those who wouldn't know what they are, how can you tell whether you're an extrovert or an introvert? Yeah, so I mean, there's loads of online assessments like the one that you just mentioned. But I always give the kind of the weekend example and say, how do you like to spend your weekend? Do you like to fill it with socialising with other people now that we can get out and do a little bit of that? Or is your preference um, to maybe have a quieter weekend? Now, we're all human and it's very important to say that personality is very complex. So we all need a little bit of socialising and connection, but we'll just differ in our needs for it. Or you might find that... You need time to process. Maybe you're a slower decision maker. Maybe you're more reserved. Maybe you're a deep thinker. You're very analytical. You're very empathetic. They tend to be the strengths and the traits of somebody who's higher in introversion. So you might look at that within yourself. And if an introvert has no choice but to get back out there and open Mm. up again, any advice for them? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, just respect your introvert temperament and what that tells you about your needs in terms of your need for recharge. So maybe during your working day at home, you were able to go off for a walk in the middle of the day. See, can you maintain that or you need little breaks to recharge? If your preference is for one-to-one, smaller groups, see if you can communicate that within the the work setting as well. And then talk to your manager, talk to your colleagues about temperament and have some conversations around that. Um, And I would say just take it slowly. We've we've never been here before. This is Mm -hmm. a social experiment. Um, And going back into the office, you know, I'd be concerned that we'd be trying to to replicate how things were before. Um, And I would love us to see that we can take this opportunity to, you know, how can we make work better for everybody and really play to everybody's strengths. You can't flick an 18-month switch in one day. No. Can't be done. Can't no. be done at all. Actually, there's an interesting concept of time of measurement, lastly, that people mm. who thought there were personality was one way have discovered mm. through lockdown that actually they're a totally different personality. Yeah, well, interesting enough, Myers-Briggs, um, they're the personality research company. They came out last year with research which said nine out of 10 people in the UK feel pressure to act extroverted. So while extroverted strengths or traits are are um, seen as successful in the workplace, so there are many introverts who feel under pressure to act in an extroverted way. So over the last 18 months, you may have actually come to some awareness that actually I quite like an awful lot of alone time. I quite like doing a lot of, um, you know, one to one communications rather than the big group. And I really have no interest in going back to to big face to face events 
events again. Um, so I, I think there will be a lot of that as well. And I think that that awareness is really good for us to then have these conversations around temperament in the workplace. So I, I think that's a good thing that has happened. Okay. Well, what would you think I was, Aoife? I'm going to guess that maybe that you're an introvert only because actually a lot of people in the public space are actually quite introverted. Oh, people you're good at comedians. your job. You're good at your job. <laughs> I didn't do one test. I did three. And they oh. all came back as introverted. There you go. Because uh, introverts are very interested in people, yeah. you know, and they're interested in finding out and, and a wide array of topics. So, yeah, go. great. Thanks very much, Aoife Lennox, uh, wellbeing coach. Um, on intro- yeah, I, an introvert. I'm a classic introvert. Would you believe... 1850-715-996 on the injection centres. Uh, Paul says, PJ, look at the centre they had in Pierce Street in Dublin, which was just for methadone. That was played with dealers selling to addicts. That was right besides one of the biggest Garda stations in Dublin. Nobody wants an injection centre on their doorstep. I dare you to ask Thomas Gould, the Lord Mayor, or any TD or councillor who may come on backing them, would he want it on Cathedral Road or whatever their doorstep is? Okay, that's a thought. Eighteen fifty seven one five nine nine six. The Onakora story. Uh, you'll have heard my package from there yesterday, and we've been covering it right throughout the summer, and it's made national news now. And very shortly, it'll make the agenda of the Iraqis. Senator Francis Black joins me. Francis, good morning. She's not there, uh, Fiona. She's not there just now. We'll get her in a second. But the it's it's going to come up. Uh, before a meeting of the Mental Health Committee of the Oireachtas, where I understand that the HSE are also going to be present, are going to be asked to, I guess, explain their strategy for closing the Onakura Centre, which, as we speak, is still penciled in for the end of October. And as we speak, none of the residents or their families know what is going to happen. And as you'll have heard in our package yesterday, some of the residents are very anxious and distressed about what might be going to happen. Francis Black, good morning. Good morning. How are you doing, PJ? How did this meeting come about? Well, um, I was contacted by Councillor Liam Quaid probably in maybe July, August um, this year, and, and I was told of the Onacor Centre possibly closing, well, actually closing, um, and, and how people were informed around it. And... I just really was shocked because, as you well know, um, you know, the loss of home for residents are really being impacted by this. And they're, you know, they're, 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 they're facing the loss of many therapeutic relationships with staff. You know, there some some of those relationships over a long period of time and are, are, are foundational to residents' sense of security and their rehabilitation. And obviously the residents are devastated as, as their family members are. So I, I thought it would be a good idea mm-hmm. to host a private meeting um, with some of the family members and Liam um, to talk about this. So thankfully, some of our, the members on our mental health subcommittee were available. So we, ha- we held a private meeting and out of that, then we decided that we would write a letter to the HSE and invite them in for a public meeting that's happening today at 12.30. OK, and what will they be asked at that meeting, Francis? Well, I'm presuming, you know, that they will be asked many different questions, for example, you know, like 
questions like who is the proprietor, proprietor of the site and, and, and premises of the Onacura Centre? Are they owned by the HSE or other organisations? And if they're owned, you know, what discussions? Has there been formal or informal discussions within the HSE? Um, and then if not owned by the HSE, what's the current lease arrangement? You know, there's so many questions that we could ask. You know, how do yeah. each of these potential alternative long-stay respite placements in Cork compare to the Onacura Centre in respect of, the, you know, in respect of so many other things? So there's so many different questions that we could ask them but the reality is is why why is this happening mm. why is this happening to you know to to the residents um surely they can just address the this issue by either rebuilding um you know another center uh, on the premises which i think is really really important mm-hmm. um you know, I think NASA uh, Horrigan, who's on the Mental Health Committee, is an ar- architect and she said that the centre either needs very significant investment or potentially it may make more sense to go for a rebuild. <laughs> but the location should not be sacrificed, you know, as it, it really is key to the community. And as I said yesterday briefly, Francis, before I wrap up with you, I did walk the site last week. There's a hospital mm-hmm. just across the road. I wa- yeah. I did walk that area. And if it's a simple yes. matter of acres available, then there are acres available. Well, well, in saying that, uh, PJ, it would be ideal. I, I do believe that there are plans for, for that site to build um, um, a residence for an old folks uh, place, yeah. a residence. But um, I think where they actually are, you know, I think that's a great idea to just rebuild or certainly the potential there is to just do it up, you know. There, there's, and, there's, there's, and they're so happy there and such lovely, gentle people as I met last week. Francis, I know, thank you for taking our call. We're cut for time. I do appreciate it. That meeting's happening at uh, midday in uh, the Oireachtas. That's Senator Francis Black, chair of that committee, and she's also at the RISE Foundation. We have a statement coming into us from the HSE on Onakura. We'll bring you that in the next hour. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. Hear the full show on our app, by podcast or on 96FM.ie. The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Okay, so I got the statement in from HSE on uh, Owen Akura. After yesterday's package on this program, my conversation there with Senator Francis Black, this meeting that's about to start in the Octus around 12 o'clock, the fact that it made national television news last evening, they issued a statement this morning, we were here waiting with it, uh, with bated breath, waiting upon it, and I may tell you now, and I don't care who's listening, and I don't care who's bothered, this is the same statement by one or two small tweaks, this is the very same flipping statement as I got and worked on a month ago. So there you go. It says the building has 19 residents. We informed residents, staff and the regulator that the centre will close on a phased basis by October 31st. Since we informed staff and residents in June, 
We've been consulting with them on an ongoing basis. This consultation is continuing. I will come back to that. This was a difficult decision, but the building which houses the 19 residents is simply not fit for purpose. We initially planned to refurbish, but as work progressed, it became clear there would not be enough to bring the building to the high standard with which we strive. Construction experts in HSE Estates advised they discovered the building is in a poor condition with major defects. No amount of expenditure could bring the building to an acceptable standard. We've reviewed all options with the centre. Every option involves a complete demolition rather than a phased refurbishment. This was not our original plan. And while it was a difficult decision, there was no other option open to us. Everyone's priority now is the welfare of the 19 residents. We are working with each resident to agree with them an appropriate alternative placement, taking account of their preference and individual needs. The work includes consulting with each resident and involving their families and loved ones as appropriate so we can agree a plan that best meets their requirements. Assessments with residents have been completed and consultation with families is underway. We'd like to repeat that residents will be moved on a phased basis and only after detailed consultation and discussion. Now, detailed consultation and discussion is repeated a couple of times in the course of that statement. When I met the residents and their families, it was actually this night week. It was Tuesday evening last. It was a beautiful evening. We were down in the grounds of the Onacorrent Centre and I met a number of people, including Maureen, whose sister is in... Uh, or, sorry, her brother is in the centre with a number of years and she was the one who brought this to our attention in the first place and just a snatch of that particular interview as a response to the statement that we have in front of us now which talks about consultation, consultation, consultation let's have a listen to what Maureen had to say Maureen, it was through you we first heard about the closure or the planned closure here have you any more information now than you had then? Um, no, really not. I have been relentless in my pursuit of information. And, for example, I wrote to the Taoiseach's office and um, that letter was passed on to the decision-makers at the HSE who passed back saying that, you know, the residents deserved better than what they had here. Uh, there is no better. But the point about it is as well, you know, there's been a continuous answer from the management of the HSE that they are communicating with residents and relatives and that has not been the case at all. Some of the lads here are saying they've only been talking to people in the last week or two. Yeah, we all got um, a phone call last Friday to set up meetings for this week. So I've had the meeting in which I was told, well, we have no further information. So there you go. That's the response. Now, admittedly, that recording is a week old. Something else may have happened in the interim. So we allow that. It's a possibility to be true. But this statement is very similar to a statement we got in the summertime, which effectively said the place wasn't fit for purpose. We're following it with interest. 1850-715-996. Take a walk, if you will, through Cork City next weekend and have a look at the derelict buildings. That is the proposition from Frank O'Connor. Frank has spoken to me many times before on the programme about the amount of dereliction in our city and about particularly the number of buildings lying there idle and empty and derelict and cold and damp and disused with trees and bushes growing up inside them that could actually be turned around and turned into housing and turned into places for people to live and raise their families. Frank, good morning to you. 
Uh, good morning, PJ. Uh, thanks for having me on again. I, I follow your, your photos with interest because what happens is I go, crikey, yeah, that place. We have so yeah, much dereliction in our city. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, really, I mean, we, I suppose I believe and we believe is uh, that uh, Indian dereliction would be transformative for Cork City and also right across Ireland, you know. And the walking tour is very much about, I suppose, inviting people, PJ, to take a fresh look at a city with us, you know. We know Cork City is beautiful. It's got wonderful architecture. It's got priceless heritage. And we want to celebrate what's what the beauty of the city before it's too late, before we lose too much more. So for us, this is an opportunity for people to come along and walk with us. There'll be like poetry, there'll be conversations, there'll be music, but look at the city with fresh eyes. And and, and from that, like, people can then make, make their own judgment in terms of perhaps they could feed back into their city development plan, which is due to be responses are due by the 4th of October. You know, so there's an educational aspect, there's awareness aspect. And hopefully people begin to see that if we regenerate this historic core, Cork would really thrive again. Mm. I remember taking you a know, drive around uh, the north side of the city with uh, Deputy Thomas Gould. We, we, we drove around for an hour or so one day. He just pointed out buildings to me that were lying empty and derelict for years that could quite feasibly have been taken over when they first became empty and, and housing put in there. Apartments, flats, houses, whatever. Even uh, refurbished uh, them for business premises. We have a huge dereliction uh, problem and it's being allowed, it's being allowed to fester year in, year out. Absolutely, PJ. Look, it's a, it's it's an epidemic of dereliction. It's a dereliction of duty. I mean, really, we have left this, like you say, go for for decades. A lot of properties that we've we've shared up myself and Jude over the last year, people have come back and said, "Look, that place is sixty years, is twenty years, is thirty years." You know, shocking uh, timeframes, really. And I suppose this really is a systems failure. It's not about personalising agenda. It's a systems failure. It's a breakdown of social contract. We're wasting resources. We're affecting people's mental health, the safety when you walk down your street, decaying heritage. And like you say, it's about providing homes for everyone. And we walk to this very simple framework of everyone should have a home, everyone should have somewhere to play and create, and everyone should have access to meaningful work. If we turn these derelict and vacant buildings around and provide spaces for people to have homes, to work and to play, I mean, Cork could really thrive. I mean, we could brand it not just within Ireland, but internationally. It could attract so much more investment, talented people, mm. tourism. You know, it would compete at such a better level, you know. And for us, you know, it is shocking to think this has happened, but there is still a possibility to turn it around. And this walk is very much, like I said, the next phase of that. You know, we're hoping as many people can come along. Everyone's welcome. You know, it's going to be a celebration of what we have as much as about us pointing out the direction. Jude and I will talk about different buildings as we go along and talk about potential, like you say, what it could potentially be. And, uh, and really, I suppose what we'd like is for uh, for people to be able to move back to the cities and for families to be able to live here again, PJ. You mm-hmm. know, everyone from an eight to an eight-year-old. I mean, the city, look, we all, we, we love the city. You love the city. It's a beautiful place. but And it is sad to think it's decayed so much. But mm-hmm. imagine if we did turn that back around, PJ. Your tour starts in Blarney Street and will finish at the former Odlums factory down the, on the docks. One of the buildings you'll pass on the way. Now, look, it's only been it's only been a year and a few months, but the Debenhams building is empty and and yes. doesn't seem to be anywhere near being taken over anytime soon, although we're open to correction on that. But I think that's an illustration, isn't it, of dereliction in the middle of our main street? 
Absolutely, absolutely. And you know what we need to do in Ireland is we need to sort of proactively bring in new measures. I know there's talks at the moment about vacancy taxes and stuff, but some of the work that Jude and I are doing is looking at other measures as well. And, and for example, with Debenhams, wouldn't that be a wonderful space for, for creatives, for artists, for communities to use in the meanwhile, in between what happens next? So we've got a, there's a concept called meanwhile use, and it's quite common in countries like the Netherlands and Denmark and stuff, where buildings like that given to the community for that time period in between maybe a development phase and you know it sort of starts to bring life back to it again and you're right it's not just Debenham sadly when you walk down Patrick Street there is so much vacancy it's heartbreaking and it does make it I suppose for people at night time it makes the place a, a lot less safe as well yeah. you know and Debenham's is, is, is like you said is a great example and I think it does require now, it's, much look, it's highly unlikely to be fair the way business works it's highly unlikely that that building will remain empty uh, forever. Uh, there's going to be something go into it. It's the nature of high street business, but it's an example. Exactly, exactly. And there's a lot more of those around, you know, and it's like you say, it's 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 about a city that we all love and we all want to do better. And I think recognising that our historic core in Cork is internationally significant. And if, if we did rejuvenate it and refurbish the buildings, obviously we're, it's less waste, we're bringing back skills that are needed, creating jobs, the local mm-hmm. economy will thrive, people will be able to go to more cafes and restaurants. It's all that wonderful thing. And I mean, when we moved back here three years ago, Jude and I, we were struck with that immense beauty. And I suppose really since then, I suppose it's been our mission to try and shine a light on it well, and well, say well. to people, look, recognize what you have. And let's maximise that potential. Well, certainly through your Twitter feed and the photographs you put up, you've certainly got me thinking, and I'm in and out of here every day of the week and places that are derelict and just shut down for years. Your tour, your walking tour starts Monday, or sorry, Saturday, rather, Saturday. At uh, yeah, and it's... Yeah, and it's with Cattle Cork. So obviously Cattle Cork are the lead organisers. They're the Tenants Union. They're doing some amazing work in bringing homes and making sure people have homes. So yeah, so it started, it's working with them. Starts at one o'clock on on Saturday. And like you said, it, it, it goes on for about three hours. So I know it's too much time for a lot of people, but people are welcome to join anywhere along the way. You know, we would be delighted to see people. You know, it's all of our city. And I suppose in a way, it's about taking back the city that we all love and making sure that can thrive for future generations. All right, Frank, thank you very much. One o'clock Saturday and at Catu, C-A-T-U, Cork, across all the socials. At Catu, C-A-T-U, C-O-R-K, across all the usual socials. 1850-715-996. Deputy Thomas Gould, I just mentioned him in passing there a couple of minutes ago to say we'd done a tour around Blackpool. It was during the last election campaign where, Thomas, you showed me the level of dereliction and I thought I knew the place, and but you shocked me. And many of those places are still derelict. You've got something coming up in the doll this evening. Good evening. Good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. Yeah, actually, PJ, I actually met with Frank yesterday uh, looking at dereliction because, to be fair, the work him and you are doing is, um, is, is brilliant to highlight it. It's so frustrating, the amount of people that come to my office. I, I had a clinic yesterday, and the amount of people who come every Monday looking for housing, and they're walking down Shannon Street or through Blackpool or in the city, and they're looking at dereliction everywhere. It's, 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 it's a scandal. And the thing about it, PJ, is we know from figures that there are at least, at least 9,000 empty houses and buildings in Cork City and County. We could actually clear the way... 9,000? Over 9,000, yes. And we have those figures. Those figures we get from the, the geo directory, which is from our own post. 
excuse me, and they, so we know right now this minute, and PJ, like, I've walked with you, we walked around and we've seen these buildings. I've been on the Cox City Council and the government for years about this, the compulsory purchase, to take them off the landlords who are just lying, and the damage they're causing to communities mm-hmm. with antisocial behaviour, with dumping, sure. just to so, live next to a place like that. So what are you doing in the doll this evening then? Yes, well, following on, Owen O'Brien has a motion on today. Now, it's slightly different from dereliction, but what it is is about affordable housing. Last two weeks ago, the minister brought out the government's long-awaited plan of housing for all, and there was a lot of promises made. But at the very last minute, the minister O'Brien gave an exemption for anyone who purchased land between 2015 and 2021. We, there was supposed to be an extra 10%. So if you built 100 houses, PJ, 10 of them would be social, but there was supposed to be an extra 10% for affordable. So for people who couldn't afford to buy them at the market value, they'd buy them mm. at a reduced price. And at the very last minute, following lobbying from the big developers and speculators and investors, the minister gave them a... Well, we don't know now whether he was lobbied or not. We know we do. Actually, no, we know. It's on the lobbying record. We know. Fair enough. And and the thing about the PJ is the Irish Times and other newspapers reckon that it's at least 10,000 properties going to be affected. Now, this is 10,000 homes. You, You have listeners listening to this morning now who can't get on the social housing list and can't get a mortgage and they're trapped in the middle. And this would have been 10,000 homes that we would deliver, could have delivered for them. And because, so what Sinn Féin is doing, and PJ, you'll be honest saying to me, what would Sinn Féin do if you're in government? Well, this is what we would do if we're in government. We would say that that extra 10% would be given to people for affordable mortgages so they could own their own homes it, it makes sense for everyone. It, takes, sure. it gives people an opportunity. And what we're asking now, and does government TDs probably listen to your show today, PJ? We are asking the Fianna Fáil and the Fianna Gael members now to, for once and for all, stand up for people who need housing. Well, well, they will say that they're doing that, I guess, and Daryl O'Brien will say that his plan will work. And look, you can bring that up in the doll tonight, Owen O'Brien will bring it up. But sure, we all know how the politics game is played. Thomas, it won't go through. But thank you very much for that. Um, it's got not a whole pile to do with dereliction, which is what I thought he was... Anyway, doesn't matter. 1850-715-996. It's coming up in the dial anyway, tonight. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Cork's 96FM. That's one or two things. On Onokara, D says the Onokara facility is just one. There are many others uh, around Ireland that will not meet the uh, standards. In inverted commas, this is just the beginning. 1850-715-996. Well, that statement from the HSE, which is remarkably similar to one we got during the summer. Um, and I played you the appropriate clip from Maureen into the level of consultation that they've had compared to the amount of consultation the statement claims that they've had. There's a difference there. A significant difference. I, I, allowing for the fact that I, inter- I interviewed Maureen a, a week ago tonight, there's still quite a difference between the statement and what she said to me, 1850-715-996. Thankfully, people have been able to get away on holidays again in recent weeks. Since, what, about the middle of July, people have been able to go off on the holidays. And some of them have, and some of them had a great time. And some of them have brought back some unwelcome visitors. And this has been happening for years. It didn't happen last year because we weren't going away last year. But a number of people have brought home a little international traveller in the form of a cockroach or a bedbug who has snuck into the laundry or snuck into the suitcases. Trevor Hayden from Complete Pest Control. It didn't happen in 2020 for obvious reasons, but it's already happening again. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good. And it's so simple. So simple for this to happen. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So nobody intentionally brings these guys home. But yeah, people are accidentally bringing them home. And that's that's when the fun and games begin. It's such a simple thing in that you take your clothes out of the suitcase, you put them into the closets in the apartment, and then you shove the suitcase in under the bed. And then when the clothes get dirty and you don't want one, you chuck them, chuck them into the suitcase. So what you have at the end of it is a suitcase full of laundry, which is fine, but that's a nice warm bed for Connie the Cockroach. Yeah. Uh, look, I was, years ago when we go away with my wife and the kids, we'd be guilty of the same. You'd have one suitcase dedicated to dirty clothes which usually sits in the corner of the apartment or the hotel room and you throw the dirty clothes in there as, as you accumulate them but as because that's left open these little cockroaches can get in um, and then other people then put their other bag maybe under the bed or in the wardrobe and it's nice and warm and it's dark in there and this is where these guys hang out mm. and if you just bring home one well can he breed or she breed 
Yeah. So, do you know what? We, 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 we were, we're constantly collecting cockroaches just to study them in the office. And we got some in on Friday from a job that we're doing. And there was a female in the container um, and she had her egg sac attached. Now it dropped off on Friday. And when we checked again on Monday, there was about 50 new cockroaches. So you could be unlucky that you bring home a, a female with an egg and it just explodes from there. Crikey. 50 babies mm. from one mammy. Yeah, yeah. And how so, how quickly will that number increase then? Well, the, those those babies then after a couple of months, they can also have babies. So it, it very, very quickly gets gets out of control. Um, we people ring us all the time about cockroaches and about other pests as well. And we're quite happy, you know, if it's, if it's rats or mice. Sometimes it, all clients need is advice. You know, they, they have their traps. You know, they just, they're not doing it right. Cockroaches is really one of those things where mm. you need the professional touch. Because they're practically indestructible. There. Yeah, I, do you know what? They, if you've ever if you've ever chased one around the apartment in Lanzarote trying to get rid of it, they're practically indestructible. Yeah, they're, they're, look, uh, what they do, they're they're very very good, and, and it's the fact that they hide in cracks and crevices. And you know, when we're doing a search, sometimes you don't see the cockroach, and you see these two little antennas sticking out of a crack in the wall, and and they're they're then you wouldn't even believe that they were able to fit in somewhere like that, and they'll they'll get in. Do any of the chemicals that you can buy over the counter actually work for them? It, yes, you can have limited effect, but it's not about necessarily the chemical. It's about the application and knowing where to actually put it. You just don't randomly spray around. The secret here is to, to address a problem quickly because if you leave it and, and you try to do it yourself and you're not successful, during that time, they're constantly breeding. Then they get into the fabric of the building. And if, they get, if that happens, you're in trouble. It's, it's about control rather than elimination. Mm. Are they dangerous to humans, I mean, do they carry disease and stuff? Yes. So, but look, you're, you'll end up getting a sick stomach or, or something like that. That you know, they're not going to bite you. It's the fact that these guys will be in in dirty areas. So they might be in the toilet or they might be down the drains, and they they'll walk across the countertop where you're about to make your lunch, and and you can get gastric bugs and stuff like this off them. Um, the, the bed bugs will be a different case. They they will bite you. Now, they don't transmit disease, mm. but they they will bite you, like say a mosquito bite or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the bed bugs, do they come home the same? way they literally get into the laundry yeah yeah the bed, bed bugs it's gas they're called bed bugs because that's more than likely where they're going to bite you is when you're still lying in bed mm-hmm. but they live in and around the vicinity of the bed so we found them inside of alarm clocks you know lights you know curtains so they will travel but like that on their on their travels they'll end up in your suitcase if you have it open or if you have it under your under your bed mm-hmm. now one of the disadvantages particularly with the roaches is they will eat anything Absolutely anything to survive. Oh, absolutely. Each other, they'll anything. They'll have a go at absolutely anything. Some stuff will work, some stuff won't, but they will literally eat absolutely anything. Mm-hmm. So how do, if I spot one in my bedroom in Douglas, what do I do? Yeah, well, first of all, when you come home from holidays, what you shouldn't do, which we all do, is you drag the suitcases up to the bedroom, you throw them on the bed, you open it up and you try to figure out, okay, that's dirty, that's clean. That's a bad idea. You should be opening it downstairs in the utility room, ideally outside. Um, so, But if you do happen to see one, it, it's about reacting quickly. 
Um, and it really is one of those ones where you do need to engage the services of, of professionals to deal with it. They're, they're tough. They're, they're tricky. Out of everything we deal with, these are the guys that are, are the hardest to deal with. Yeah. Would it be advisable that even before you come home and the day before you're supposed to pack up the luggage, that you take out all the suitcases, empty them out, shake them out and make sure there's nothing in them? Yeah, we, when I go away, I have a ritual. So first things first, when we arrive on, on holidays, my wife immediately makes me check the bed, make sure there's no signs of any bed bugs. So that's arriving. And then we, you know, you zip up your bags. You, but like that, exactly that. So we take everything out before we go. We give it a quick once over, you know, check the actual inside of the bag and give everything a quick shake, put it in. And at least then you're, you're drastically reducing the likelihood of bringing something home. Yeah. And if you do, contact an expert like you because you, these are not guys you'll be able to deal with on your own. A mouse for a rat, you can put down a trap or, or set yeah. the cat on them or something, but but not not roaches if they get a hold of the house. And they can do terrible damage, like I said, if they get into the walls and stuff. Yeah, what, what happens is they they get, if, if, if left long enough, they'll end up in an area that you can't treat it, you can't get product to them to actually treat it. So, but there is a ways around that. We can use a, a gel bait whereby if if the cockroach eats it, they'll die. But if another cockroach eats that cockroach, they'll die. And it's kind of a domino effect, but it takes much, much longer to do it that way. Right. Okay. The best thing is just don't bring them home. Thanks very much, Trevor Hayden. Complete pest control. You need to avoid bringing any unwanted visitors home with you. Um, I had Trevor on before <laughs> Very that year we went, I think it was 2019 and we went away and I'll never forget the crack we had one night I was getting into the bed and I heard a roar from the other side of the apartment there was a cockroach running around had come in and we were on the second floor cockroach was running around had come in and it took me an hour and a half to catch him I eventually did catch him and fired him out over the balcony because that's all you can do you can't kill them 1850-715-996 Still, what I wouldn't give for a fortnight in the sun Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM With McCarthy Insurance Group Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance CMIG.ie Access all areas on Cork's 96FM Your guide to nightlife on Leaside Hi, it's Michael here with an update on Cork's Entertainment. The Upstart Festival takes place this weekend in Glanton and features Pretty Happy, Flywheel, A Cow in the Water, Punctious Pilot and the Nail Drivers and Funky. Tickets are available on Eventbrite Upstart Festival. Access all areas. Europe's premier tribute to the supergroup Fleetwood Mac brings you on a magical musical journey from Peter Green Blues era till the multi-platinum selling band that tour these days. Mac Fleetwood is part of the Guinness Cork Jazz Festival at the Opera House and takes place on Saturday October 23rd. Access All Areas. Feel free to let us know at Access All Areas if you have a show, play, exhibition or gig coming up or any live streaming events by emailing us at aaa at 96fm.ie. Access All Areas. Your guide to nightlife on the side. On Cork's 96FM. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now, 1850 715 996. On Cork's 96 FM. They're talking earlier on this morning with Professor Liam Fanning on the vaccines for children and the low uptake. Uh, just to give you the numbers again 
from uh, the early morning news was that uh, nearly 100,000 children aged between 12 and 15 haven't yet been registered for their vaccine. That compares to 78% of 16 and 17-year-olds who have been registered and 86% of 18 to 29-year-olds who have either registered or already even had uh, their first or their second dose. So we're talking to Professor Fanning and he was insisting, look, get your children vaccinated and when they come down to the seven-year-olds, the six-year-olds, the five-year-olds, get them vaccinated too because the evidence is overwhelming. Hi, Lizzie says, Hi PJ, I'm a mother of three, nine, twelve and fifteen. I vaccinated my two oldest and would do it for my youngest if I could. It wasn't an easy decision. I'm vaccine-hesitant But on this issue, I believe science. This virus is much nastier than we think, and it does affect children. I was scared, but this decision was the best we've made for our children. Since August, we've found the virus so much closer to us than ever before. I want to give my children their life back in the same, in in the safe and possible way. In the safest possible way. Sorry about that. I'm French. And I did look at the French vaccinations where the uptake is very high in that age group. I understand every parent's concern and would recommend to look at all the world data. This pandemic is going to stay with us for a while, so I felt we needed to make those difficult decisions to survive. Thanks, says Lizzie. And Chloe says, good morning, PJ, just to give you an idea of how important the vaccine is. I'm fully vaccinated. My husband isn't. He was holding off. Unfortunately, about three weeks ago, my 15-year-old son had COVID without us knowing until my husband got very sick the week later. When my husband got a COVID test, he was positive. So my two kids got tested and that's where we found out my son had had it too. My 11-year-old daughter was negative but still had to isolate. While isolating, she developed symptoms so I brought her for another test and she too was positive. Me being the only one vaccinated had been around all of them and I didn't get COVID. I had two negative tests, so I have nothing but praise for the vaccine and my husband and son will be vaccinated as soon as they can. 1850 There's a couple of other comments in on uh, the injection centres. Where's that one I wanted to read in particular? Yes, this one says, and look, this is the total opposite to what Michael Gearin was saying to us. Says on WhatsApp, there should be no shoot-up centres. I don't like that name, but anyway. There should be no shoot-up centres. It's a disgrace. What about when they're stoned and walking around the streets? They're dangerous people when they're stoned. What about the homeless children? The government should be more interested in them than in drugs. Lots of, we're, we're, we're very busy, very, very busy this morning. Uh, thanks, PJ, for the informative interview with our own Cork expert immunologist. Very neutral advice which people need. I'm one of those waiting for the 5 to 11-year-olds to open up. Uh, three out of four of us in the house now vaccinated. My 11-year-old is anxious to get hers. What a fantastic service the HSE provided in the vaccination. And I have to say this, I was very critical in the early days of this, of how the, how the HSC was rolling it out. I was very critical and I was probably getting a bit ahead of myself, I have to admit, because in the end of the day, they did and are continuing to do a damn fine job. So much talk about vaccination centres uh, this morning on the programme. I forgot completely that this is 
Recovery Month and that I had been speaking with Owen for whom Recovery Month means an awful lot. And I'll let you hear that now. Here's Owen. This is September is Recovery Month. It's the month where recovery from addiction is commemorated and celebrated. And Owen has been speaking to us about his experience. Owen, thanks for being with us to discuss Recovery Month. And, and the best way to do that is with your own recovery. But for there to be recovery, there has to be a fairly uh, troubled journey. And I think your troubles began when you were only 10. Yeah, um, thanks for having me on. Um, it's nice to be here. Um, I don't normally do this. It's not normally <laughs> you speak about your recovery at your, your 12-step meeting or whatever service you do. So this is uh, certainly different. Um, I suppose the hindsight is great. After spending some time in recovery, you can kind of get to look back on your life and realise where things might have went wrong. Yeah. You know, um, 10, I would have experimented the first time, you know. Um, and you did mention bullying there. Like, I could go back even younger with bullying. You know, so... Um, school school bullying? School, on the streets, a bit, you know, like, a, a lot of it could have been, you say, soft stuff, you know. Um, I would have been, uh, I suppose, insecure. Know how to express myself, um, you know. So I took everything to heart, and as, as times went on, it did get a little bit more serious, you know, a little bit more aggressive. And um, I suppose at the age of ten, I was demented, you, you know. Um, I suppose like I, I came from a loving family, and not being able to tell my parents how I really felt, you know. Um, so it was just like I didn't know how to express what was going on inside my head. Was it that you didn't know how to tell them? You'd have been welcome if you could, but you couldn't. Is that it? Yeah, just how to express yourself, you know, yeah. as a ten-year-old to say how you're exactly feeling, or um, so it's just this, this anger, I suppose. And I remember someone told me about Tipex in school. I think it could have been in fifth class. And um, smell Tipex is probably uh, not as strong today as it was mm. back uh, twenty odd years ago. You know. Yeah, Tipex for people who wouldn't remember it was correcting fluid. If you made a mistake in your copybook you put this little white paint on it and you could write over it because I'm sure nowadays everyone uses laptops and tablets so Tipex has kind of gone out the window a little bit but it had a very distinctive smell and that mm. was what it was that was the whiff you were getting yeah yeah. yeah. so you, you smell that and hopefully you get some form of rush I don't know when, what kind of came next you know obviously with our society as drinkers you know I did um, have a soft here and there um, nothing too serious but I know when I did first drink, I obviously got sick, but anger and emotion is what came out, you know. Mm-hmm. What, time, what age was that? I'm going to say 12, 11, 12, you know, that I can remember that. You know, because it, it was the stage of sixth class where mm-hmm. I started experimenting a lot more going into first year. So, like, fifth class was probably the start of it, more or less. Yeah. Sixth class is where out in the street there was a bit of drinking and... Um, Hash was around at the time. So the area that I lived in wasn't bad, but there was a lot of there was a lot of uh, drug use going on. Hmm. So when you kind of get to see people laughing and being happy, you're kind of saying, "I want that." Yeah. You know? So it's kind of enticed into that kind of um, that kind of way of life, you know. Um, like I still played ball and I still had loads of activities, but I was drawn into, you know, hmm. um, taking substances. How how were you doing at school? Um. Okay, I guess. I've done quite well. I left after my junior cert. Um, I've done quite well. Mm. But 
was my mind there or not I was always somewhere else you know and I shot myself out going to a fantasy world just this, just this protection um, shut out the world so I was never really paying too much attention mm. even though I done okay in school you know and was it that you were when you were using what did you get what did you get out of using was it some kind of sense of safety security what peace of mind wow yeah. obviously there was a rush and there was feelings with certain substances but I always had a suicidal ideation from a very young age so when you have these intrusive thoughts inside your head and then they suddenly disappear it's just peace of mind right. also I chased that and I chased it for 17 years afterwards you know really? um, yeah so like that, that was that was kind of the start of the journey and very fast into first year into secondary school things things took off you know um, started hearing about different drugs um, drinking a lot more yeah and just getting carried away and did it get noticed at home or were you able to hide it oh yeah 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 look um, I suppose the people who get hot most in addiction is the ones closest to you yeah. you know so could have been street angel host ever, you know coming in angry and um, it brought trouble to the home or stress and not worry and like at a very young age um, geez, and she's that continued for a long time you know so like there was a lot of pain and destruction causing yeah. me you know you were 27 when you eventually turned a corner was there mm-hmm. was there a, a, a tipping point was there a particular moment that you remember where you you caught on to yourself you had no choice but to catch on to yourself I guess yeah well I suppose I'll have to go back a little bit before that. So, like, my first stint in recovery was 21, 22. You know, I have family who go to the fellowship of AA. Um, my drinking was crazy. I was acting in ways I shouldn't have been acting. Um, I was doing things that I regretted, full of shame and guilt, and didn't like the person who I was or who I became, you know. Um, so I started my journey there in AA, and I had six years of relapsing. You know, I was in, I was out. Hmm. So it was just this vicious cycle for years, you know, um, and anyone who's probably listened and who has relapsed and who's been through the journey, it's torture for me and it's torture for my loved ones. Yeah. And did you kind of tell yourself every time that's the last time? Oh, yeah, convinced. You'd have yourself convinced this is it. I'm grand. I'm, I, I'm okay. I, I feel I'm going to do it. Um, but addiction is powerful. That's the thing, you know, it's really, really powerful. Yeah, because you know when you go into recovery, but for a month or forever, whatever amount of time you go into it, like to someone like me, you know, someone who's never been through this, if you can stay away from the drink or the hash or anything else for a month, then your body doesn't need it. So, so where's the where's the draw in the mind? It's like addiction is a mental obsession, mental disease. You know, it's like you're constantly thinking of your next drug, your next fix. Um, best way for me to explain it, I have 17 years of abuse and substance. So you have 17 years of living a certain type of way. That doesn't just change in one month to being off it. So you have a long, long road of recovery to mm. change. So it, it, is, it is a challenge, you know. It's it's so much more than physical. Oh, so much more. Like, obviously, like you, you can see there's other drugs that, that, that um, destroy the body, you know, and, and there is that. But at the end of the day, it's just this, this mental obsession. Right. So after many years of trying 
and falling off the horse and going back again and falling off the horse again. What was the point at which you eventually succeeded? I remember just being, I was stuck in my shed. I was afraid to come out. I am convinced the work was after me and I went out for a pint and it just snapped. You know, I was just standing at a bridge and I was pulling hair out of my head, literally. Not wanting to be or feel the way I'm feeling, sick of behaving the way I was behaving and the pain and torment I was after causing, you know. Um, and I made a phone call, you know. Um, I knew a member from AA, so I rang him and said, look, I'm in terrible state of affairs, you come get me, you know. Um, and that was the start of it, you know. Um, that was the start of me trying to get help. Um, I suppose the next day I did ring uh, Table Lodge and told them what, what way I was thinking, what way I was, and they invited me down for uh, an assessment. Mm. But I couldn't get a place straight away, of course, you know. Um, they were fairly busy, so I had to wait two weeks. So, um, you know, I went to meetings every night. Started talking to people. If I could talk to people, just I was just so afraid. You know, just so afraid to pick up. Um, mm. I didn't want to... Yes, to be honest with you, I didn't really want to live, you know, um, but I did at the same time, mm. you know. Um, and did you know in your mind or your heart and soul that this was the, this this was the one chance you needed, this was, yeah. this was it? I was done. I had to get this, so I'm probably going to die, you know, either by overdose, accidental or suicide. Um, and that's a kind of a scary reality. You know, so I had to put everything into it. <laughs> everything, you know, um, and that's that was scary. You know, the moment where you realise, okay, I, I, I'm now here. I'm, I'm in treatment. I'm determined for this to be the last time I'm in treatment. But I've got a whole lot to do with my mind. How, how, how do you deal with that? I suppose you don't. You have to take one tiny little thing at a time, you know. Um, it's not you, like you have four weeks inside of a place, so it's kind of like you can't fix your whole life in four weeks. You got, you got, you got to look at what the problem was, you know. Um, Twelve-step meetings, you know, um, counseling if it's needed, counseling. But like the big changes are kind of for later down. They kind of say like, don't make any big decisions in the first year. Take it nice and easy. Um, most important thing is to stop taking the substance you're taking and um, go easy on yourself mm-hmm. and when you came out of that session of rehab did the temptations come back no um, I, I feel very blessed that um, I was done I was finished I had no desire to, to use it left me very fast mm-hmm. um, and is that on because you had decided I, it's it's this or bust like I had no desire for it. If I do, I'm dead. You know, um, I had too much to live. Um, I love my family. I wanted to live. You know, so yeah, all or nothing. No, where, where I'm trying to get to, and again, obviously, you you appreciate. I'm coming at it from the point of view of someone who's not been there. Is like there've been so many failed attempts, and then this was the one where you came out and you'd no desires anymore to go back. Mm-hmm. Can can you put your finger on what was the difference? It's a hard one to answer. Mm. A hard one to answer. 
you know what? It's like it's hard to explain to someone who who, who hasn't kind of been sure. you know, sure. kind of like you know you just know inside, you know, you know in your heart and your mind, um that this is it, you know. And it's nice, you know, you're starting to look a bit healthy instead of gone eating. So it's like you have you have these really good feelings about what lies ahead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The pink cloud, they call it. The pink you know? cloud. Life is amazing. I'm clean and I'm free. <laughs> and reality kicks in, you know, eventually. Mm. Reality kicks in, you know. How long ago is it now? I was celebrated 10 years clean last week. Good boy. Well done. Well done. And do you still go to meetings? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the one last night. Can I, can, I ask, can I ask another question? Yeah. If it's 10 years since you felt any desire for a drink or drugs... Why are the meetings, and this is a, this is a genuine question, why are the yeah. meetings so important still? Simple. I'm an addict. It doesn't go away. So, like, I don't take a substance or put it inside me, but I still have an addicted mind. Right. You know, so um, I can get addicted to anything. You know? So your meetings are your medicine? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I'd be lost. I'd be lost. You know, it's the problem. You've tried to live. You have to go back out into society and apply your recovery into society. Is that a bit scary? At the time, yes. Mm. Uh, right now, no. You know, um, my first year in recovery, I started, I didn't know anything about myself. I knew my name was on, and that was about it. You know, I didn't know any of my hobbies, what I like. So I had to start doing different things. Um, it takes a long time to build up a bit of self-belief and self-worth, mm. you know. got into a sport, rock climbing. Right. A friend of mine asked me to go and I kind of laughed at him and and I ended up doing the sport that I absolutely became obsessed with, you know. You went on to coaching it, I think. Yeah, I did, yeah my profession for, I think, eight years, seven, eight years, I can't remember. So, yeah. So, I, I, you had this shy, insecure person who couldn't look someone in the eyes to be put into a centre where there's thousands of people coming in every day. You kind of build up life skills, you know. I had to go back into society and um, get on the best way I could inside her, you know. I like a good feeling, so that's the dangerous thing about uh, being an addict. We love, we love to feel good, so whatever makes us feel good, we take it to the limit. Your pathway was a long one with, with a lot of difficult turns in it. There's probably someone listening who is struggling with addiction themselves or struggling with a loved one. Hmm who's in addiction and they, they think it'll never be over they think it'll never get solved it'll never get sorted what, what's your message to them today? I suppose to the people who are, who are active that there is hope you know never give up hope you know? um, seek out the services mm. you know for family members the services out there you know um, if you want it you can get it mm. you know if you don't like with you, there had been many failures. Well, the, many. Ti- the time came. Will everybody's time come? Hopefully. Can't say that everyone's time comes. It's people, there's probably people after dying today. Yeah. I've, I've lost so much friends, you know, recovery. And, and the thing about it, addiction doesn't discriminate. No one is safe. That's just the reality, you know. Um, yeah. But if you want help, there is help. Young people don't have to die. Well done to you for, for getting to where you are 
Um, and and thanks for explaining it all to us because there, and there were many things in there I asked you purely from the point of view of a fellow who is lucky enough never to have had to deal with it. So yes. I, I, I and I appreciate you answering those questions as best you could. Oh, it's, it's a pleasure to be able to do this. Like I said, it's not my normal thing to do. Um, I was a bit apprehensive about it. Um, the lamb, <laughs> but look, it's recovery. It's recovery month. So, you know, the messages we do recover. Oh, and thanks very much. The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. Hear the full show on our app, by podcast, or on 96FM.ie. The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. I forgot to say this to you earlier on, but at 21 minutes past 8 tonight, look out the back window. Or the front window, whichever window you want to look out. Or stand out, if it's a nice evening, which I think it will be. At 8.21 tonight, it will be officially autumn. That is the moment of the equinox. 8.21 tonight, it will be officially autumn. I'll try to tell you more about that in a wee while. Some, some of you were wondering about my introversion versus my extroversion. I'll get to those comments too. Busy, busy day on the opinion line. Busy, busy, busy day. There is a an art exhibition or an art installation has opened on the subject of domestic violence here in the city. And the project is called This Will Not Be Pretty, which I think speaks for itself in terms of a title. There are new figures out today that show an average of nearly 100 domestic abuse incidents reported to Gardaí every day this year. These figures are just hot off the presses. 24,686 domestic abuse incidents reported to Gardaí up to the 9th of September. That's one every 15 minutes. For the year to date here in Cork 2021, they included a variety of offences such as violence and breach of a barring order. They were revealed by the Minister of State, Hildegard Nocton, in response to a parliamentary question. That's a lot of domestic abuse. And we talked during lockdown and on the two sides of lockdown about the fact that, you know, domestic abuse went up during lockdown because people had no escape from it. And particularly the first lockdown last spring of 2020 when that was the first real lockdown we had. That was the one where we went, ran in, locked the door and, and didn't go out for weeks and weeks on end because we were told not to. Domestic violence really soared in that number of weeks and we took some very distressing calls here, off air mostly because people were terrified to come on air about the things they were experiencing and the fear that they had. So when you have a, an exhibition like this opens, it's it's nice to talk to some of the people behind it um, and I'm joined by Dr. Eve Olney and Dr. Honor Tuhi. Good to speak with you both. Hello, thanks for having us. Hi there. Hi. Both members of uh, the, the Rage Project, We Rage Together. What if you care to explain what Rage is? I'll start with you, Eve. Yeah, well, it stands for um, realising absolute gender equality 
And um, we didn't, we were brought together by the artist actually of the exhibition you're talking about, Sarah Jane um, Booth. And we came together through an interest in feminist issues in general, but specifically the systemic failings and perhaps complicity in the failure to adequately address and act upon gender violence and within that domestic violence. So like yourself there and the horrific uh, statistics you've just called out, you know, we're by no means experts, but I suppose that's where we kind of positioned ourselves as people who were just so sick and tired and horrified of seeing these type of statistics that we really wanted. We're all from different fields as well. So uh, within kind of our, our collective research, I suppose, our individual research. So we wanted to work together um, to see, really find out for ourselves um, how, again, um, gender violence might be, you know, um, part, you know, more kind of systemically ingrained. And then, you know, what kind of things that could actually, you know, that maybe we have to really rethink how um, both as communities, you know, and um, within the social, we really need to readdress um, how we deal with domestic mm-hmm. violence. On there for years, we just didn't talk about it. We We all knew the woman down the road who was, and I'm using the kind of language we used, got a hard time from the husband or so-and-so was hard to live with. Uh, What we meant by that in polite language was he battered her. And we all knew somebody like that. Uh, We have a serious problem with it in Ireland, don't we? Well... It definitely, it definitely appears that we do have a serious problem, and I, I guess from talking with the with the people who work at OSS and Cooley, that's that's what they that's what they showed us as well that um, there there is a problem that this is that is going nowhere, that women who women especially who 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 end up in these situations. Um, take to the courts sometimes in order to solve or in, in order to move on with their lives and then find that that system itself isn't as helpful as as they had hoped yeah. and I guess that's what this what this project um sort of reveals or 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 speaks about is is that is is, is that exact thing that women are stuck end up stuck in these perpetual loops where they're 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 trying to get out and they're 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 trying to get the help but they're trying to do things the way they're being told is the best way to do things and it's not working for them. In the very early days of the pandemic, we used to read out here at least once a day a list of essential service numbers. And we were asked to add the numbers for OSS to them. And when we did, uh, they came back to us and said there's been a surge in people calling us. The pandemic has been an awful time for those living with a difficult partner, living with a with a violent partner. Mm. Yeah, I mean, as part of our research, as Honor mentioned, uh, we collaborated with um, OSS and Kun Lee in particular. And part of that research was a workshop we put together where we discussed uh, we had discussions around the institutions of home and the institutions of um, of the court system. And again, drawing specifically from their own experiences of, you know, having to navigate people through this really, really complex um, and long process. Um, and 
the idea, I suppose, why we wanted to specifically was, again, they don't tend to get too much attention, the support workers. Um, and as you say, they were put under so much, you know, more extra stress, um, you know, and completely lacked the resources to be able to, um, again, address and accommodate um, the amount of um, people contacting them. Um, so what was really interesting that came out from that workshop um, was actually um, like the, the, the again, where they're really in it, you know, we should really listen to these people, you know, and it'd be really great to get maybe Deborah O'Flynn, the coordinator uh, with the Domestic Violence Centre on as well, talking about this, because as I said, we're not experts, so we're literally kind of paraphrasing them here. Um, but that, the, you know, that the legal system itself, there is, they did mention that there is sensitivity training now for Gardaí, mm. but that they, they mentioned really that, the, it, you know, the judicial system is really not fit for purpose for the, the victim, for the, the women themselves. And of course, sometimes it is the men mm-hmm. um, that are victim. But um, that it really, you know, that there should be definitely um, training, you know, the even the idea of, of lawyers, you know, of judges being trained, being retrained, um, just seems kind of quite an alien one um, at the moment. But it, there's just such a necessity to really put the, 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 the victim's experience at the centre of the legal system. And at the moment, from what we've heard and, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, what we've garnered from uh, talking to, to, to the, the experts, basically, I mean, it, it's just a really um, harrowing, uh, difficult um, experience. So, so much of it never sees the inside of a courtroom or let alone see the, a courtroom, the inside of a guard station, because some people just don't, they just yeah. don't talk. Yeah, I would add as well to to um, to what he was just mentioning there is that they're in legal um, academia itself. Um, they take old judgments, so uh, cases that that have happened in the past, and they look at those judgments, and they'll and they'll rewrite them in terms of what would happen if we placed the victim at the centre of uh, the focus in the courtroom, and what happens um, in many cases is that the process the the process of reasoning that the judge goes through or shows in the final judgment is is completely different and also um is it comes across as a much more fair so so the victim in the in that situation comes out of the experience feeling like well i was heard which is w- w- which is quite important um these these so yeah these 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 rewritten judgments are kind of showing what would happen if judges or pe- and people who work in courtrooms were much more aware mm. of the experience of people bringing their their life situations to the court in in these ways okay mm. talk, talk to me about the the exhibition uh, by Sarah Jane Booth where is it on and what what's in it so, will I take that? Yeah. <laughs> Whichever one of you no, wants yeah, to take that. So, so basically, uh, how it worked was um, within the workshops we did with um, with uh, Kun Lee and OSS, we gathered um, kind of information. And again, that was really specifically based on the experiences of the support workers um, within the, the legal system. And then um, Sarah Jane basically, in court, we had you know weekly meetings um, and discussions around Sarah Jane's work, where then she incorporated that into 
her artwork and it resulted in an exhibition, website scenes, um, an exhibition now that is continuing in um, Copper Hair Salon on Half Moon Street, um, uh, thanks to uh, the support of Sabrina Hill. Um, it was funded by the Cork City Arts Office um, and the Arts Council and Sample Studios. Um, and basically, um, it, it presents a real sort of, and there's also a video link there as well. Um, if you go to the window, um, you'll be able to um, link onto um, a video um, of a performance by actress Katrina Foley. So basically, it stands as a critique of the, the victim's experience within the judicial system in particular um, as well. Hence the... Hence the name. This this will not be pretty. And it runs at Copper, as you say, until the 16th to the 27th of September. Uh, thank you very much to Dr. D. Eve Olney and Dr. Honor Tuhi, uh, part of the research that led and ended up with this exhibition. And they've been working very closely with OSS and with Kuhn Lee. And if anybody is listening who needs help and needs it right now, uh, OSS has a free phone. 1-800-497-497 that's 1-800-497-497 that's a free phone it's manned right now and Coon Lee has a phone number you can call also it's 021-4277-698 that's 021-4277-698 Can we just talk the Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie The Cork's 96FM music panel gives you the power to pick our playlist. Click 96FM.ie now. 96FM.ie now. Take the 10-minute survey and you could win a 100 euro shopping voucher. The power to pick what we play. Pick what we play. Join the Quark's 96FM music panel. Find the link on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Find the link on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Or see 96FM.ie. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now, 1850-715-996. On Cork's 96FM. Apropos of nothing, Morris was on to ask a question. He said, does PJ intend to discuss his chairmanship of the up-and-coming United Ireland Forum in the Clayton Hotel? Uh, the answer is no, Morris, because I'm not chairing it. Uh, I was asked earlier in the summer if I would be interested in chairing this meeting, which is the first of a series to run over many months. And I said, yeah, I'd certainly give it some consideration. And I looked at the plan and I said, well, I can chair a discussion and moderate a discussion. And then a couple of weeks ago, I had to um, uh, stand down as chair for family reasons. Family reasons, unfortunately. I cannot be there with them on Saturday. So I won't be taking it any further. So thanks, Morris. 1850-715-996. Speaking of Saturday, Premier League Live is back on Saturday 
at 96fm.ie with Trevor Welsh, powered by Talk Sport, bringing you live coverage of Chelsea versus Manchester City at half past 12, Everton v Norwich City at 3, and Brentford against Liverpool. That is at half past 5. It's the Premier League Live online with Now. Stream live Premier League action with a Now Sports or Sports Extra membership. And listen Saturday on the Cork's 96FM app or go to 96FM.ie. For the love of me, I will never fully understand the attraction of the great British bake-off. But half the world watches it. So, hey, maybe they're right and I'm wrong. But it's back tonight and people will be glued to it and it will be trending on all of the social media platforms. So again, who am I to argue? Patricia O'Flaherty from A Touch of Magic. Hi, Patricia. Good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you for having me. What is the attraction of watching people bake on the telly? Oh, you can shout at them on the telly in your own room. It's like watching a football match. You're looking at people and they're cracking eggshell into a batter mix. They're putting in salt instead of sugar. You're screaming at the telly. Now, having said that, I do watch it on my own <laughs> because none of my kids will watch it. Along with my husband, they just leave me alone in the room. I just love it. They're just all inexperienced. Some just love baking, some of passion. But it's all the quirky, fantastic characters you get. That's what I love. It's the humour. It's the personalities that shine through. And it's the mess and the mistakes. We all love a train crash. <laughs> like the lively and the funny one will be the one, like you said, who puts in the salt instead of the sugar. I, I know. And you know, it's funny because you'll see that there are so many contestants. I think they have the 12 contestants and they're obviously all waiting for the title. But what's fabulous, there's such a huge demographic. I mean, you've got them from a 19 year old, 26, 40, mid 50, right up to 70. I mean, there's hope for us all. <laughs> so this is where when you see these fantastic bakers and some are vegan, there's a 19 year old Freya. That'll be interesting now because everything she's going to be doing is vegan. And that's a real hot topic this year. You've mm. got a lot of intolerances, you've allergens. So it'll be interesting how, you know, a twist on some classics and then to veganize it, that'll be interesting. Um, but I mean, you've got graphic designers, you've engineers, you've architects, you know, mm. it's fabulous. You've even got a met detective. I mean, how cool is that that loves to bake? We've, we went kind of well some of us went kind of mad on baking during the first lockdown last year uh, you know my, my daughter started baking mad at one point I said if I saw another slice of banana bread I would throw it out the window but then she produced the most gorgeous ginger cake she went baking mad we did go baking mad during lockdown again I the, the attraction escapes me but but still it is a huge hobby Oh, my God. And, you know, the other thing as well, like people forget that it's it's a creative outlet and it's also a form of therapy. I mean, this is where I can hear the purr of my oven and the minute I turn on my oven, I relax. The shoulders drop. I can hear the tweet tweet music or as my kids call the classical, the la la music in the background. And I'm in my element. So a lot of it, it's actually escapism. It's pure escapism. It's the waft. It's the aroma coming out of a kitchen. It's a... Oh, 
what's mom cooking this morning? Oh, what is she baking? Dum, 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 down the yeah. stairs. And then they're looking at cookies or cupcakes. I really think it's a form of therapy. And I think a lot of people during lockdown needed some sort of escape. And baking um, was one of those one of those escapisms that they could just eat the treats and share and care. Well, I, <laughs> I like that. I have to say this, the smell of something baking is lovely and warms up any house. The smell of bread or smell of cake is, is lovely. It's the smell of burn that never really follows it in my house <laughs> when I do it. Or if I try it. Yeah, yeah, we, we do get that wee, wee, wee in the house and it's, oh my God, what have you burned? <laughs> uh, listen, don't get me wrong, I've had a few train crashes in my in my day as well and that's the whole beauty about baking. You just, you're constantly learning, you're constantly experimenting. I mean, there has been some disasters where my wonderful husband will just say, that was lovely, dear, we'll have that again next year. <laughs> so that's basically one not to do ever again. So it's trial and trial, get into the kitchen, start experimenting. But when you're sitting on your own and you're, you've the remote control to yourself, I mean, all the women, uh, everyone out there, oh, it's not football on the telly, it's baking. Well, there's that. Absolute heaven. And <laughs> they're old classics that will simply never die. Like, there's nothing nicer in the world than freshly, in my mind anyway, freshly baked ginger cake or freshly baked oh, yeah. apple tart. But Absolutely. Then you run the, into the discussion about the apple tart. Do you want a thick crust or a thin crust? Do you want sugar on the top? No, don't. I don't like the sugar on the top. I need a thick, a thick crust, right? Loads of filling, and please don't overdo it on the sugar. Oh, and have the cream ready and whipped for me. Oh my God, absolutely. A granny apple tart. I mean, how bad. And it's it's the Victoria sponge. I mean, that gets a bad rap. But oh, that, no, that's too sweet. as a traditional bake, is gorgeous. But the apple tart, I'm with you with that one, PJ. The apple tart, I would dive headfirst into an apple tart. Tiny bit of cinnamon. Now, I could be controversial on this, but I do There's love foreign against it. There's foreign against the cinnamon. In, in the winter, the cinnamon works, right? Yes. I think in the summertime, it, it 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 overpowers it a little bit. I don't know why. I would I would face Pam into an apple tart right now. I just <laughs> I would love a slice of apple tart. Yeah. You've just got me now thinking. Yeah, yeah, no. I'll throw some apple tart <laughs> in for this evening. Gonna... Exactly that big, thick, chunky apples, and as you said, a sprinkling. Even just a whisper of sugar. Um, you have enough sugar going on and you can taste the apple, but particularly with that lovely, crunchy, exactly. buttery pastry. You don't, you, oh, don't have to, you don't have to poison it with sugar. Do you know? There's enough no. sugar in it. And a grand thick crust that you can pick it up and hold it with. And yeah, love that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm with you on that one, PJ. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's back this evening. We wonder whether... whether we'll, do we still have the whole soggy bottom discussion every night? Oh, absolutely. That That's part and parcel of it, you know, and the, and the special Paul Hollywood handshake. I mean, who's going to get the Hollywood handshake this season? I mean, listen, we even have a sort of a scoreboard. So we get all the names. And I mean, this is where my pals, this is how sad my life is, but this is where we get my pals. And we have a, what do you think? Yeah, what was she like today? What was Amanda like? Mm, not too good, not too, Freya, yeah, she stole the show today. And we give them points and then we see who's going to be the winner for the very season. And that's, that's the thing. It's just getting complete involved. It's almost a form of Downton Abbey except it's vaping on telly. <laughs> Would I be horrible if I wanted to send in Gordon Ramsay to sort them all out? <laughs> 
I don't know. I'd say a few of my home ec teachers back in the day. Well, Jeannie Mac, they put the fears in you. <laughs> Someone, yeah. No, go on. Listen, listen. Enjoy it anyway, Patricia. And good to have it on the opinion line. That's Patricia O'Flaherty from A Touch of Magic. Um, great British Bake Off back on telly this evening. Look, it's one of the biggest things in the world. But I just want a bit of apple tart now. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Cork's 96FM. <laughs> I've apple tarts in the oven as you speak. This is Sinead Brannock. Uh, gluten-free bakes. Uh, you can get the smell off them. I have an app on my phone, a wonderful app, that all through the year, it gives me the sunrise and the sunset for every single day of the year. And it also gives me things like the nautical twilight, the civil twilight, the sunset and the moon. It's fabulous it's for every single day. But it reminds me, this app does, that at 5 to 1 this morning, as if I needed reminding, there was a full moon. Nearly nearly as bright as day outside my bedroom window tonight, or last night at 5 to 1, there was a full moon. And that at 20 minutes past 8 tomorrow night, the 22nd of uh, September, it will officially be autumn, because we are at the point of the equinox. Let's bring in space correspondent Leo Enright. Leo, good morning to you. Good, good morning, PJ. I've had this argument with my listeners for years and years. I believe September is autumn, and here's the science to make it, to, to show me. The equinox. Explain what the equinox is. Well, the equinox, it's it's from the Latin, PJ. It means that uh, uh, it's the, the day, the, the, the day and night are at equal length um, at the equator. So it's the moment at which uh, the Earth's equator passes through, as it were, the, the line of the Earth's equator passes through the centre of the sun. Uh, if you were standing on the equator, the sun would be exactly overhead. Uh, it means, too, I mean, it does have implications uh, all across the planet. For instance, uh, PJ, um, it is the only, right now, the, uh, today, tomorrow, uh, and a, c- a couple of days either side of the equinox is the only time I- in the year, that's two equinoxes, of course, the spring and the autumn equinoxes. It's the only time of the year when it's daylight at both the North Pole and the South Pole. Oh. So that gives you some idea of where the sun is. And that uh, in didn't a couple know. of days, the yeah, in a couple of days, the sun will set at the North Pole and they won't see the sun at the North Pole until the spring equinox next year. Wow, that, that I didn't know, Leo, that it's that, that today and again it's sometime in in March they see the sun at both ends of the of the earth, both the poles, and that's the only time it ever happens. Exactly. It's wow. the only time in the year when the sun sees both that are they see the sun. Uh, both the North and the South Pole. So it gives you an idea of what the equinox means. Um, it's very different from the solstice. Yes. Uh, the solstice is, is different. The solstice is where the sun appears uh, to, to move back down. Uh, it, it's, it gets uh, higher, in the, it gets lower in the sky uh, on, in one hemisphere and higher in the sky in the other. 
uh, as the season progresses and then it stops and starts moving back down. That's when the, the sun starts moving back towards the equator. Our solstices are, are, are June and, and, and December. Where do you exactly, stand on yeah. the seasons, Leo? Because we were all taught in school, and I blame, I blame St. Bridget for this. We, we were all taught in school that spring was February and autumn was August and, whatever, and November was, was... But when you pick up this astro, astronomical detail, it tells us that September is autumn. So astronomy says autumn is September. Yes, but of course, it's it's it, it's all to do with how we perceive it and how we experience it. And our traditional dates uh, for the beginning of uh, of spring and the beginning of autumn are more agricultural. They have to do, you know, it it takes a while for the effect of the sun, um, you know, to change. So you know, your 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 crops aren't going to be instantaneously different when they're lit by the sun differently. So it does take a bit of time. There's a bit of lag. There's a bit of earliness. Uh, each each area of the world has a slightly different perception of when spring and autumn start. And of course, PJ, we could turn this entirely on its head uh, and point out that, of course, uh, uh, tomorrow evening, uh, tomorrow evening uh, is the beginning of spring if you're down in Australia. There is that. Um, so all of our all of our friends and, and many relatives, of course, many people have relatives in Australia. I mean, Australians would be enormously offended by hearing us describe this uh, as as the autumn uh, Indeed they would. Uh, equinox. It, for them, it's the vernal equinox. It's the spring equinox. There you go. There you go. And that that and that is true. Leo, you know, what's fascinating about all of this is that it always happens the same time in the year you could literally you could set your watch by it you could set your clocks by this that this happens this is the miracle of the great universe around us isn't it well it, it, it just be we need to be careful pj to remember that when we talk about setting our clock by something we're actually only going back to uh, uh, to 1916 um, I, we're only going back to the beginning of the last century because before that, there was no standardized time. The time in Galway was different than the time in Cork. The time in Cork was more or less the same as the time in Dublin uh, because, you know, they're on, they're on a similar uh, uh, latitude. Mm. But the, um, or is it longitude? I, I get confused sometimes so myself. Um, but but they're, you know they're they're equally uh, spaced from uh, say, shall we say London the centre of the empire whereas you know in Galway the sun sets uh, quite a few minutes later so uh, our perception of 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 time both in terms of hours minutes and seconds and in terms of the seasons varies depending on where we are on the planet. Mm. But it's all the way. I think that's the best thing I learned today, and I didn't know it though, is that today is a day when the sun shines at both the poles and it doesn't happen again until what we would call the springtime. Leo, always a pleasure to speak with you on the opinion line. That is Leo Enright, space correspondent. For me, September is autumn. And I have the proof in front of me on the app. Do you see? There it is. There's the. Yes. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. All the stars on one show. 
Yo, what's up? It's your boy KSI. Yo, what's good, Universe? It's 24K Golden. I'm Miley Cyrus. Hi, we're picture this. This is Medusa. The Hit Mix with Shane Bucks. Shane Bucks. On your radio, weeknights from 8. With New Market Motors Volkswagen. Low rate finance and purchase contributions across the Volkswagen van range. Newmarketvolkswagen.ie. Corks 96 FM. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 1850-715-996. On Quartz 96 FM. I remember watching the British Bake Off or whatever you watch. Um, what happens if someone gets frisky at uh, particular times of Great British Bake Off? Because it's the time your sex life is at its highest. And then the problem is you're trying to watch... Great British Bake Off and your other half in the morning has is, or the other half has different ideas and then in the morning time you're trying to listen to Casey and Ross and, and your other half has different ideas too and it's all mismatched and it can cause problems in the relationship because guess what? Our sex drives don't peak at the same time for everybody every day. It would be a very boring world if we did. But Dr. Caroline West is host of the Glow West podcast. Caroline, good morning to you. Good morning. How are you? Good. And I am I am trivializing here, but there's a there's a quite an amount of mismatching out there. Thirty is it nearly forty percent of relationships their their sex drives don't match up. Their their times uh, shall we say their, their, yeah. their best times are not the same. Absolutely, yeah, and and to look throw into that, you know, the stresses of life, especially during a pandemic and work and kids and the laundry and all that kind of thing. So it, it's almost a wonder at all that we even managed to have sex in the first place, let alone our, our gender differences as well. So um, I think it's really important that it's something that people try and stay on top of because before you know it, it could be, you know, weeks or months that, that slip by before you have sex on, you know, on the terms that everybody wants to have sex in. So there's a lot of compromise and communication to be had. You know, a couple that really know one another will know that there's no point in even bringing the subject up right now, whereas on another time, just the slightest suggestion and away with you. It's, it's, it, it, you know, you, you, you get to know your partner. Yeah, absolutely. But again, you know, it's important to remember as well, I think sex drives can change over time, especially for women. We have things like the menopause to deal with and, you know, a regular menstrual cycle as well. So, you know, sometimes we might feel in the middle of 10 o'clock at night, but maybe not the day before your period starts or all those kind of things as well. So that a lot of men don't have to deal with. They're, they're kind of ready to go a lot of the time as well. Um, so it is important to, to talk and compromise. And maybe, you know, it is worth um, having a chat, say, one of you is the morning person one of you is a night person what about lunchtime you know and it's like a sneaky kind of work from home um a little afternoon delight you know can be something that kind of meets both your needs at the same time which is you know kind of good i was thinking to myself of all the people going back to the office this week you know maybe that's one of the reasons why some of them are a bit reluctant yeah, there, there has been research to say people are having sex on their lunch breaks at home and it's like, why not? You know, like we take care of ourselves in other ways. Sex is just another part that like we can have some happiness in life. You know, it's not a bad thing to have a quickie on your lunch break. Um, but I think, it, you know, if we, if we go back to times and stuff, it, you know, it can be important to remember that a lot of people also have responsive desire. And what that is, is they're not feeling super enthusiastic and they'd probably be like, oh, 
not really. But if something starts happening, they might be like, oh, actually, I am really into this. Now, obviously, there has to be communication about consent, first of all, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but if that applies to you, it might be the case of, okay, I, I'm, you know, I'm not really massively into it. Oh, but they're touching my leg in a really nice way. And okay, you know, I'm, I'm actually feeling really into it, you know, and, and obviously, again, consent is at the forefront of that. Um, or it could be a case of talking about what sex actually is. You know, if you're kind of having the kind of sex that's over in a couple of minutes and only one person has an orgasm, you know, you might not be that enthusiastic to have that kind of sex and don't really blame anyone for that. So yeah. having a chat about what sex actually is and using that as an opportunity to maybe spice it up a little bit or have a chat about the different things that you can do because there's so much out there that we can do. You think you know it all and, and you really don't. You know, yeah. there's so many different ways to have than, sex. More than half, there's a bunch of research done recently and it, it said that over, for, for over half of men and half of women, they're their sex drive is different to that of their partners. And then the website illicitencounters.com say that a mismatched sex drive is the biggest driver of an affair. Yeah, well, I think it's a bigger excuse for an affair, shall we say, because an affair might seem, you know, very glam or exciting because, you know, you get to meet up for the specific purpose of having sex. And, you know, that's that's kind of what all relationships are at the start. You're dating someone, you're going to meet them on a Friday and have sex and, you know, everything's going to be great. Whereas real life, you know, the kids get in the way or you've just spent all day at work and commuting and laundry's in the way and it's not very sexy. So, you know, I think it's important to refocus back on the relationship rather than and take an easy way out so to speak that'll actually cause a massive trail of destruction for everybody left behind and you know it's not an easy option really yeah yeah no it's it's we're always kind of taught that you know people's calendars tend to reset themselves when they live together so you you understand your other half's biological calendar or at least you're, you you think you do. Nature tends to reset them, but does it really? Yeah, it does, and you know, it can be our sex lives can be impacted by things like you know diabetes or depression or anxiety. And we know during the pandemic, a lot of people have been very anxious, and there's been a lot of drop off of sexual activity as well, or again, menstrual cycle, or just you know, our bodies just doing all the weird and wonderful things that bodies do. So, you know, just because you start off having sex three times a week doesn't mean you might always do it or, you know, like our libido kind of comes and goes and waves sometimes. And that's okay. That's absolutely normal. Um, But, you know, it does take work. So, you know, we do work at, you know, things like our physical health, like brushing our teeth and things. So we do need to work at our sexual health and our sexual wellness as well. So that means talking to our partners and saying, hey, the kind of sex we're having at the moment isn't really doing it for me. Let's try something else. Or, you know, let's we can have a quickie, but the next time I want it to be a long session or something like that, where you're both kind of getting your needs met in, in different ways. So, you know, it is all about communication. Is this, thing that, is this something that people actually talk about over dinner, Caroline? It should be. In, in my world, it should be, you know, if everybody would have the skills and, you know, um, confidence to do that. Because, you know, if you're fumbling around in the dark and you don't know what's going on, you know, there's a high risk there for not having a good time and for actually having sex that isn't really pleasing for everybody. And if we, if we are with our partners and, you know, we've promised to love them forever and all this, we should be able to be a bit vulnerable with them and say, hey, this is what I want to do in the bedroom. Because otherwise... 
it just kind of, it does have a risk of kind of just tapering off. And, you know, before you know it, you haven't had sex for months because you haven't talked about it. So it's something that it does need to be worked off. Okay. All right, Caroline. And your podcast is a great place for people to start. The Glow West podcast. That's Dr. Caroline West.